Simon. Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> Hello? Hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Simon. How you hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello. Hello. How you doing? Hey. Hello. Hey there. Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hi. Conversations with storytellers. Wisdom, folk and fairy tales from our elders. A meeting with professional storytellers. After the passing of some great storytellers, I decided I wanted to interview some of the elders in the community of traditional storytelling. I wanted to capture their thoughts, their ideas, and maybe ideals in their own voices. I didn't want a traditional interview, but a conversation with these folks. I was not looking for deep personal secrets, but for insights on what makes these legends in my world tick, what inspired them, what makes them do what they do and how they do it. Some will tell us their favourite stories. Others will share their thoughts on our profession. Some will give us glimpses of their lives and the lives of those around them, who their mentors and inspirations were or are. All of them share gems of wisdom. Welcome to Conversations with Storytellers. I first met Donna Washington a few years ago at the National Storytelling Conference in, I think, Phoenix, Arizona. I'm not very good at dates and places. It was my 50th birthday weekend, I remember that, and she, along with some others, helped me celebrate somewhat quietly. She's one of the most wonderfully warm and open people I know. Her outlook always seems to be sunny, and her optimism is as big as a planet. She is generous, and I like to think of her as a friend of mine. Donna inspires many people and shares her thoughts and work both on her website and blog. Please enjoy my conversation with Donna Washington. So I have on the phone with me Donna Washington, who currently lives in uh, uh, North Carolina. And uh, Donna, you have uh, something like nine CDs of stories. You've written four books on your own, and I think you've written a few others as well, right? And you've won a gazillion awards, right? And performed at, at least... <laughs> Quite a number of them, yeah. Yeah, and you've performed at, at least as many festivals, including the Jonesboro Festival. You are a, a very accomplished storyteller and writer and a super nice person, as I discovered when we, when we met at the uh, NSN conference a few years ago. Um, thanks for agreeing to be with me uh, here today. So um, I did a little bit of research on you, and you were born in Colorado, right? Yes, indeed. Yeah. And um, you are the daughter of um, a person of the military. He was in the army. He was in the time I was a kid. Right. So you, you call yourself an army brat. I am indeed an army brat, yes. And you actually recorded a CD called Growing Up Army. Yes. Right, about that time in your life. And what I, what I read was, I haven't heard this CD, but I'm sure it's great. Um, what, I, what I did read about you is that your dad told you a lot of stories. What? What kind of stories did he tell you with? Were they folk and fairy tales, or were they stories about the army and what he was doing? Uh, my father is a historian. Um, by, by, I mean, he, he loves history. He's a student of history. He reads about it. He, 
writes about it. So when we were kids, the thing that was fascinating for him was the mythology of some of the places that he loved. So growing up, from the time I can remember, my father told my brothers and sisters and I stories from Greek mythology and um, the Arthurian legend. And he told them in first person. So we thought he'd been there. We had no idea these stories were mythology. We thought they were his life story. So you thought he was doing the things that Theseus did and... Exactly. Nice. And he, he told them all in first person. Like, he, he actually said, you know, that, that uh, he met Oedipus, and he talked about traveling with Oedipus. And when I was in first grade, I learned the riddle of the Sphinx, because, of course, he told us that he'd been there when Oedipus heard it. And he gave it to us and gave us 24 hours to see if we could solve it. So we had it at dinner time, and then we, we thought about it all day. And then when we gathered again at dinner the next night, we heard the answer to the riddle and more of the story. So he would throw my mother in there every now and again to prove that all of this stuff actually happened and he was already, and he was actually there. <laughs> so, so cool. I grew up thinking he was thousands of years old. <laughs> and I don't remember when I learned the, about, you know, the various things that they teach kids, you know, like Easter Bunny or Santa Claus or any of that. I don't remember any of that. But I do remember the day I found out my father was not thousands of years old. I remember that day. So those are the kind of stories I learned. So really early on in my childhood, I had uh, you know stories and not folk and fairy tales, but uh, mythology and that sort of thing was a mm. huge part of my growing up. That's neat. What was the effect when you... Did you feel really cheated or did you think, oh, that sly dad of mine? <laughs> well, I think I was stunned. I mean, I mean, you know, I was probably in third grade when this happened, uh -huh. mostly because it was such a part of my childhood. I never questioned it. I didn't question it even once. Right. And my father's also a sleight of hand magician. <sighs> so he basically the reason that he told us he'd been in all these places um, was that he was he was he had been apprenticed to Merlin, the magician. Nice. And so he would make things appear and disappear. He could pull coins out of your ears. He could make things just vanish, and, and he just did all these really cool tricks. So I didn't have any reason to doubt any of this, right? And you're a kid, you don't doubt it. Yeah. I remember thinking that when, when I found out he wasn't that old, I was stunned first. And then I, I had a moment of going, how is it possible that I didn't know that he couldn't be thousands of years old? I mean, I know people don't really live that long. Right. How could I not know this? And then I just felt sheepish, <laughs> you know? Um, my father is, I think if ever in the world there was a man who was a trickster character, my father is that guy. Yes. So, just as trickster characters, you know, I get why people keep going back to trickster characters. I get why people trust them again, even after the, they do something nutty. Because, you know, it's just who they are. Right. There's something, um, lovable, there's something I, lovable about that as well. Right. There's something, you know, he's... He's just a clever, clever man. And, I mean, these days he works with spies. I mean, <laughs> he's just a neat guy. <laughs> wow. So he's still around. That's great. Yes. And now he teaches spies. But he has done, and done all kinds of interesting things over the course of his life. And he debriefs spies. I guess I shouldn't say he teaches me to debriefs them. 
and they come in and they're stressed out and he tries to help people deal with things like that. So he's had jobs like that over the years. Though yeah. at this point, I have to be honest, I think he changed jobs a couple of years ago in the Pentagon. So I'm not really sure what he's doing now. I'm not often likely to know because, you know, he always laughs and says, if I tell you, I have to kill you, you know. That's yeah, it. and he's probably true. <laughs> Probably telling the truth. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of it's true, yes. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm assuming that your dad was a huge influence on you when you were growing up. Well, here's the thing that's funny about that. The part of, part of me that, like, lives in story, partly, definitely, from my dad. But my mother, is, she was a stay-at-home mom pretty much the entire time I was growing up. There are seven children in my family. And my mother's only job, it seems was to figure out what to do with us on a regular basis. Right. So she signed us up for everything she could think of, from cross-stitch to judo to theater to, you know, I took a mime class. We were always doing things. Um, and she really encouraged us all in the arts, even those, those in my family who were science-oriented, um, did arts work because she really felt it was a really good way to learn how to express yourself. So even my siblings who are not counted amongst artists have a good arts child-based childhood. That's so cool. Now, I, I read that um, you traveled around a lot because you were the army brat and that you have adopted sisters. I have one adopted sister and two adopted brothers. Okay, and how many... Um, uh, birth siblings do you have? I have uh, one birth sibling who's a girl and two that are boys. Okay, and what do they all do? Wow, okay, so... <laughs> my old, the oldest adopted child is a girl, and my so my oldest sister is... Um, she was in Korea recently. She was working at the Dragon Inn, which is a big fancy hotel there. She has owned businesses. You know, she's she basically... Sounds like she sort of gets an idea to go off an adventure somewhere and goes off and has an adventure. Oh, wow. And she's still doing that. Um, my, my oldest brother lives in the Chicago area, and I always say he tilts at windmills. He <laughs> has, um, right now he works for an organization that um, it, it advocates for people who have no voice. So he's worked um, with with impoverished neighborhoods, helping them to keep municipalities from putting dumps and things like that in their area. Oh wow! Um, so he has ghostwritten for the Democratic National Convention and and various candidates for the Democratic Party. Um, he gives uh, workshops on uh, civil disobedience. Oh wow! So he works very hard to help people who are struggling with. Um, Injustice against larger entities in the government. That that's that's very, very commendable. I like very that. Specifically. And then I'm the next person in that line, right? Okay. So yeah. I'm a storyteller. And then my brother, younger than me, um, he is the one younger than me. He lives in Indiana at the moment, and he's always been someone who manages companies. So uh, occasionally he's, he's worked for various manufacturing companies over the course of his life, and he comes in and he's, he manages their system. Um, the brother younger than him works at uh, Eli, Eli's Pharmaceuticals, Eli Lilly Pharmaceuticals, and he is one of the top executives there. So 
he's in charge at the moment. Well, last time he was here in America, he was in charge of all of the, um, what do you call it? The, uh, I don't know, corporate words. <laughs> human resources. Okay. He was in charge of all the human resources in North America. And so he's back. He was, then he was in Puerto Rico for a while, and he's back now. And I believe that he's overseeing one of the new drug alliance that they have. So he's doing that. But one of the coolest things about him is he is probably the most technical, you know, like logical brother that I have. And he rewrote the sales rules for Eli Lilly to the tune of Twas the Night Before Christmas. And it made them much easier to memorize. And he actually got some bigger word for that. And he sort of is always at the top of his uh, uh, sales goals because he uses creativity and a lot of artsy type things in a world where people are very logical and very, you know, pump, 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 pump. Right, so right. his arts training really came into handy um, to help him get where he is. And then the brother underneath him, my brother Milton, <laughs> he lives in New York City. Milton, um, my mother once said he would either be Al Capone or Martin Luther King. He is uh, really creative and interesting. Uh, right now, he is working on his bio- uh, he's working on a biography, and he is a memoir, and he is also he's one of those people who just does things. He looks a bit like that the actor The Rock. Okay. And he's this big, beefy, muscly, bald man who's absolutely gorgeous, and basically just does whatever he likes. Uh, and then underneath him, youngest child. Hang on, hang on. Uh, my so, sister lives hang, in Maryland. Hang on, hang on. So she does musical theater. She's sung off Broadway. She's toured na- nationally with uh, musical theater. And right now, she works import export. Okay, that's a fun job. <laughs> there you have it. So, so your youngest brother is—is is he more Martin Luther King or, or is he more Al Capone? You, you didn't say. Um, he's had his moments on either side of that fence, but right now. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. So, I, I know that you travel to Seoul and and Korea, and I assume that you travelled other places. Do you consider yourself um, a world citizen, or were you in the USA much growing up? Um, I spent most of my childhood out of the country. Right. And so, I think I've come to understand my perspective on America is very different a lot of people who never left. I also understand my perspective is very different. A perspective is very different from people who have only ever lived in one part of the country. So I would have to say I'm probably more like a world citizen right. than I am think that I think about, you know, being an American citizen. Now that doesn't mean I don't absolutely love being in America. I do. I really enjoy the uh, being here. I'm very much part of this world. But that's not to say that I, I don't recognize and appreciate the fact that other countries have other things to offer that right. we could really learn from. Yeah, I know. It's, it's one of the frustrating things for me. I mean, you know, as, as an immigrant, I love being here. You know, I've been here for over 20 years now. Um, okay. um, and it, it kills me to see the country not, not becoming what it could become. Living up to its potential. Yes, absolutely. Yeah to use big words. How did you end up in North Carolina? From well, Colorado. that's a funny story. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was in uh, the Chicago area. 
uh, I attended at Northwestern University. And uh, then after I quit, after I quit, after I graduated, I stayed in the area and I was working. But I don't do well in really cold, dark places. And from probably about October to March, October, uh, uh, Chicago can be a really cold, dark place. Okay. And uh, one year, it just got really, really bad. And I was dating a fellow who lived in um, Evanston. He'd always lived there. And he... This is Texas, right? One, one evening, I was like, okay, here's the deal. If you need to live here, we should break up, because this is a deal breaker for me. I cannot live in this part of the country. Not forever. He said, I don't have to live here. And then he, a few months later, he went on a road trip. And we know we didn't want to go east, excuse me, uh, west. So he went up the eastern seaboard, and he visited a number of states and visited some friends, and he came back about a month and a half later and said, these are all the cities I think I could live in. Which one do you want to live in? And we picked this one. And this is this is David, right? David, yes, yeah. indeed. We'll get to him in a bit. Because <laughs> he he sounds like a really cool guy, and I I know that you know I've met you, and I know that you're incredibly vivacious and 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 huge personality, and a very warm and caring person. And I, I want to talk about him in a bit, but anyway. Okay. So you began telling stories at college, but you were studying theatre. Is that correct? Do, do you um, think I had I was at Northwestern University studying theater and I got cast in a piece of theater by a grad student who was also a friend of mine. She was taking a class in storytelling and to get her graduate degree she had to teach a class on storytelling. So she did this really clever thing. She cast a play and then she made all the people in the cast take a class so that she could get credit for having taught a class. And so during that time when I was in that class, I made the transition into storytelling. And apparently I was the only person who didn't know. So when the show was over, uh, Reeves Collins, who is uh, my mentor and a dear friend, he walked up to me, the point I hadn't met him, he walked up to me and he said, you should be a storyteller. And I said, okay, because I was 20 nothing, and when you're 20 nothing, everything is good. Yeah. And then he spent the next year of my life turning me into a storyteller. Um, he did things like he, he showed up in the hall like two weeks later and handed me a class schedule that was partially filled out and said, I signed you up for two graduate classes in storytelling, because at that point they didn't have any undergrad classes. Two graduate classes in storytelling. I don't know what you have to do to make the rest of your schedule work. Just do it. And I was like, okay. Wow. Um, and then the first day in the class, people were going around introducing themselves. And then it got to me, and he pointed to me and said, that's Donna Washington. She's already a new story. She's already a storyteller. She's just here to learn new stories. And then the next person went. I didn't get to say anything. <laughs> so he did things like that. And then ultimately, he got me my first job as a storyteller. He said, I got a show. Come, and I'll split half the money with you. And I came, and I got 150 bucks for telling for 20 minutes. And I thought, I could do this. Yeah, right. And... That was really the beginning of me thinking, this could be a job. Like, not just something I do on this side. I could do this for a job. And ultimately, it ended up that way. So you, I really never had another job as a grown-up person. This is the only thing I've ever done. So that's great, because I think a lot of people have slowly fallen into it. So you're, excuse me, you're one of the few people that actually didn't fall into it, but was directed to it. I picked it, yeah. yeah. I picked it based on... Uh, Mr. Collins, ju just Dr. Collins, just pushing me right on in. He's like, this is what you should be doing. 
and he was right. It, it was a good choice. Yeah, I, I would agree with that for you, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Um, so you do the storytelling. You've written books. Which do you? I'm assuming that storytelling is is the lion's share of what you do. Well, yes. Um, I I probably do. I don't know. Three hundred, three to four hundred gigs a year, maybe. Wow. And um, then when I'm not out traveling, I work on writing. Except sometimes I can't do that. Sometimes I'm just here trying to resettle before I leave again. Right. Um, but, yeah, and I travel. I mean, if you gather up all the time I travel, I probably travel about six months of the year, six to seven months of the year, if you sort of gather it all together. Uh, the rest of the time, I'm here. And I'm either doing day work, you know, you drive out, do your thing, come back, or I'm just, like, I have a series of free days now. So I try to get my writing done then. And a number of years ago, I started blogging, like three years ago, I guess, four years ago. Mm -hmm. And I didn't tell anyone to write it first because I didn't know if I was going to like it. Right. Um, and then after I'd been going for about six months, I finally started telling people how to do it. And now I feel sort of required at least once a week to sit down and put thoughts on paper. So it's a good practice to write. And so I do write a lot, but I, I think I probably tell more than I write. Right. Do you, do you love writing? I do. Yeah. Um, however... with an idea and you're working that idea and it's sort of coming together I like that part I don't like the bulk of it which is rewriting the thing you already wrote right that's probably I would say 85% of what a writer does yeah, so um, you rewrite the thing you wrote and then I like having written I like going by a bookstore and pointing in the window going I wrote that yeah <laughs> I like that or someone shows up and they've got it like um, for example I was at a um at one of those artist conventions and people always have books on their table and all the books on my table, I wrote all those books. But a lot of people just have them up there because they tell stories from those books or they have adapted pieces from those books. So it's funny to walk by a table and see one of my books on someone else's table and point to it and say, you know, I wrote that book. And they go, oh my gosh, you gotta watch it. I like that part. I bet you do. Do you sign the books? If, <laughs> do you sign the books for them if they do but, that? Uh, I don't always like the whole business of, of the, the rewriting, which can take months and months and months and months and months and months. Right. I've actually, um, I'm, I'm in the process of, I've always written stories and I've, I've written a couple of really long stories, which would be considered like children's books, I guess. And um, recently I joined a writer's group and I went from understanding that, well, I went from thinking that I was a really good writer into reeling that I was a writer with a lot of potential. <laughs> <laughs> I think every writer is a writer with a lot of potential. Right, and uh, I've I've learnt so much from this group, and actually, in in the editing thing is is because these are like stories as opposed to like essays and stuff. I get really excited when I've got something right. When I when I get down to editing, and it's like, oh, they're not going to crit me on that because I got it right, you know. <laughs> I get all jumpy up and down well, with that. <laughs> I think the. Um writing and, and people ask me okay, how do I get published and I, and I always answer if I knew I would be more published yeah right um, so, so it's you know it's a crapshoot and I don't particularly write things that are popular right now mm -hmm. the things I'm in, I enjoy writing aren't necessarily popular and if they're not popular they're not going to sell and in this particular market people are not interested in things that aren't going to sell really well right. um, before back in the back in the old days before Harry Potter children's books were to for children to enjoy 
and you could have one really, really top-selling book, and then the rest of your line is just for, oh, look, you know, let me get my kid a book. This is interesting. But after Harry Potter, it sort of occurred to the children's book publishing world that you could make a mint on children's books, and it really changed the whole nature of how books are published. Yeah, I also think that at the time when Harry Potter came out, at least the first couple, there wasn't, there weren't very many good kid stories. I mean, well, yeah, I, I'm going to have to disagree with you. I think there were lots of them. They just weren't targeted for mass market. You could always find great kid stories, and you could find a plethora of them. Well, you, yeah, but you had to dig for them. Right, I mean, you have to go find them. And now I think what we have is that we have baby Fancy Nancy books. Right, <laughs> right. Fancy Nancy books. Yeah. But do we need 80 of them? I don't know if we need 80 Fancy Nancy books. Yeah, right. I have nothing against Fancy Nancy books. They're lovely. They are. Um, do we need 80? I don't know. No. So, but you also, a lot of smaller publishers that put out really lovely books, a lot of them went under or got bought. Right. So the, 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 what Harry Potter did for children's books, making people, making kids read more and wanting to read thicker books, in some ways it also kind of got rid of the large number of interesting children's books that got published. And it also made it harder for your book to stay in print. You know, Maurice Sendak was in print for a long time before he became popular. Right. And librarians pushed his work. These days, you have, like, a really short window of time. If you don't gain an audience in that short window, your book gets canceled. So Maurice Sendak would not be who he was, or he, you know, if he tried to publish today. Yeah, I think you're probably right there. So, it's, so it just depends. So right now, at this point, I have two children's books sitting with a, a, a publisher. I have uh, two novels sitting with agents. And we just have to see. Yeah. We just have to see what happens. Yeah, it's the same with uh, one of the writers in my group. They've, they, had, they had a book. Um, they went to one of these like writers' conferences, and there was a bunch of editors there. And ten of them wanted to see it. And half of them, she's, they've had it for about a year now. And, yeah. and she's heard from maybe, maybe half of them. And the one that was really, really excited, she hasn't heard back from at all. Yeah. So it really is, I mean, you know, I've, I've met a lot of writers, you know, through doing authors' evenings at schools and stuff and libraries. Um, and I, it, it's, it's the rare few that don't have a second job. <laughs> So, right, right. You know, right. it's it's not um, it's not what it was. You know, you, you used to be able to get your stuff published. Now it's much harder to do. The market is much tighter. And if they like it, it has to be timed when it comes out. Yeah, and the other thing is, is like there's a lot of self-publishing, which also saturates the market. Right, right, right. And so because there's a lot of self-publishing, it is even harder to find the good from the bad. Like there's no. Yeah. There's no screen anymore for what you can find. Right. Which has its, you know, advantages and disadvantages. Exactly. So back to storytelling. Okay. <laughs> what is it about storytelling that makes you tick? What's, what, what's the important part of storytelling? What, you know, because, I mean, I have my own ideas of why storytelling is important. I want to know what your um, thoughts are on that. Wow. Do you think it's important? Or do you just think it's a great job and I don't care? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um, I would have to say that what 
I have evolved into over the last 29 years is the neural work that happens in storytelling, what storytelling does to the brain, which is why so much of my work in the last decade and a half has been about education and about literacy and about vocabulary. Um, I think the most important thing about storytelling is the fact that we are hardwired for it. Mm -hmm. We evolved for storytelling. And that without storytelling, there would be no language, there would be no art, none of it makes any sense unless you put it in context of storytelling. So if we understand how stories work, we are better able to deal with it when we get bad story information. Right. And so I think about how we deal with story because, you know, stories are about emotions. They're not about facts. <laughs> anyone, anyone in the will tell you, yes, some of that's true. So, we're the purveyors of fake news. <laughs> we, exactly. But the thing is, is that there's a reason why fake news is so powerful, because it reinforces the things we already want to believe. Yeah. And if you get the things you already see, if, if what you believe is not anywhere in reality, that's tricky. That's really tricky, but you can still believe it, but there's nothing to back it up. But if you start seeing things that back up the belief that you already have, then you need those things to be manifest in reality. Thinking about that guy who thought, who believes the fake news about there being some kind of human trafficking ring in the bottom of a pizza store, in the basement of a, of a pizza franchise, and actually went there with weapons to expose it. I mean, that's a pretty powerful story for him for whatever reason. Right. So much so that his ability to think about the feasibility of that disappeared. Right. And he went there to do something about it. I mean, that's, that, if, if you ever wanted to know, and they talk about the power of fake news, but that's the power of a story to make you manifest something in real life that is nowhere near reality. Right. And so for me, as a storyteller, I think stories are incredibly powerful. Right. They shape everything there is to know about us. Um, I often say that you can tell what kind of person someone is if you know the stories they believe and the stories they don't believe. If you just got a list of them, you would be able to tell what religion they belong to. You'd be able to tell whether or not they traveled. You'd be able, you'd be able to tell if they, were, if they had some issues with other ethnicities. You'd, be able, you'd know a lot of stuff just by listening to the stories they believe in. And I think that is amazing. And it's also why That's it's powerful, and we should be figuring out how to expand our understanding of it in all contexts, not just for performance or for education. I like that idea. That's very thought-provoking. I hope so, because that's one of the things, one of my missions in the next, you know, decade or so. That's really cool. I'm impressed. I like that idea a lot. I mean, I, I you know, I'm a big believer in, you know, how powerful story is because, you know, I think, you know, th there's a similar slant to the way that I think insofar as if, if somebody knows that you can spin a story by teaching somebody the art of storytelling then they can see through that spin. Yeah. Right? Um, and I think it's important that people know that. I also think that it's important that people are able to tell their own story so that we can gain more empathy in the world. Um, yes. So, I, I agree. I think it's harder, you know, they always say it's hard to hate someone if you know their story. Right. 
But I think it's also harder to see them as different if you know their story. Yes. Well, you understand them, and then everything else like starts to fall in place. You might still not like them, but right. you can understand them. Yes, yes. It's true. So, so going, kind of going along those lines, but taking a kind of diagonal sideways, like, trip over my feet kind of direction. Um, <laughs> when I began telling stories um, uh, back in the UK, I was... Um, it came from my uh, belief system, if you will. And um, I told a lot of Native American uh, stories, first people stories. Um, but then when I came over here and found that um, a lot of Native Americans are not too keen on uh, non-indigenous persons telling their stories because they've had so much else stolen from them, I, I actually realized that I should be telling my own stories. And so a lot of my stories are uh, from my heritage which is you know european irish um do you think your heritage and also the fact that you've traveled so much around the world um has pushed your direction of the stories that you tell and choose wow uh that's wow that's quite a that's quite a question and and interestingly for me more of a loaded question than you probably realize no i i realize how loaded that question is <laughs> And, so, and for, for anybody that's listening to this um, interview, Donna Washington... I, I did not grow up um, immersed in any culture that anybody would look at and say, African-American. I didn't grow up in anything like that. Right. Um, I, my, both of my parents, because my dad was in the military, I uh, didn't live around extended family at all. My exposure to people on most bases in most of my life before I hit middle school, was completely multi-ethnic, completely multi-ethnic. I don't, I can't even recall a time in my childhood when I wasn't surrounded by people from every corner of the world. And I didn't think about it twice, like it was just normal. What right. was weird was when I would visit my grandmother and everybody would be the same color. Right. That was just really weird to me. So. I, I think about the heritage that, if you talk about the heritage I grew up in, I would have to say I grew up believing that, that, that you know, that there wasn't any color barrier. And both my parents grew up in segregated Texas, but they didn't tell us anything about that. Like, I didn't even know any of that was real. Wow. I mean, I read about it in books, but I never knew anything about it. And it wasn't until I was in high school that I found out about any of the stuff that happened to my parents. And the only reason why it came up was because we moved back to America, and I was in Lawton, Oklahoma. I had never been in a homogenous situation, and I was in a pretty homogenous one at Lawton. Yeah. And they had just, well, no, no, this was, this was in Indianapolis, even Lawton wasn't this bad, moved to Indianapolis, Indiana. And they had just integrated the schools in like 1984 or something. Are you kidding me? They had just integrated the schools completely in 1984. Oh my god! And so it was the first time in, Indi in Indianapolis that they were forcing people to go to school with people who were of a different ethnicity. That had never happened before. And there were all these people up in arms about it all over the state. And this one woman who had a fourth grade education who was going to take her children out of the school and teach them herself so that they would not have to go to school with black children. Wow. That's insane. And I oh thought to God. myself, how is 
that even real? And I asked my mother about this. I was like, why would anybody do something like this? And then my mother had to explain, really explain what it meant. And it wasn't just like a textbook explanation. She started talking about what happened to her when she was a kid. So I didn't find out about any of this really as a real thing until I was, gosh, I don't know, 14? <laughs> and so my take on uh, what is culturally real for me is probably a little different than other people. So when I tell stories, I am an African-American storyteller, but and that didn't really play, being an African-American didn't really play a big part in my childhood that I know about. Right. I mean, my father was always one of the highest ranking black officers anywhere when we went because, you know, there, there just weren't as many. But that didn't change the fact that I was who I was. I mean, I was always, you know, top of my class. I was a really smart kid. I was the kid who always got picked for stuff. I was the kid who did the lead in the play. I was the kid who won the essay contest. I was that kid. So I was always, you know, striving. All my brothers and sisters, you know, excellence was required of us, but, but everyone's parents expected excellence. You're a military kid. Yeah. So none of that that had to do with ethnicity was part of my landscape until I was almost 14 years old. So if you... That must have been... Oh, and, and because I spent time overseas, um, the, the grown-ups were worried we would, A, forget what it was to be Americans or something. So we learned an amazing amount of American folklore. And the, the, the liaisons, the country liaisons were worried that we would not be appreciating the culture we were in. So I also heard a whole bunch of Asian folklore, right. Korean folklore in particular. So my childhood was just surrounded by folklore from different parts of the world. And as an adult, um, if you ask me what my culture is, I really couldn't tell you. I usually say I just grew up in the army. That's the culture I know. Yeah, you're a world culture. <laughs> right, it really I mean, I'm, I'm not gonna pretend that I grew up in like a really seriously, you know, indoctrinated into a particular culture, really seriously, this is who you are. I just never got that. So. I don't have that kind of identification. And when I run up against people who are militant about their ethnic identity, that's weird to me. Yeah. By the same token, I don't tell, I, would, I mean, I'm like 132nd Cherokee or something, but I would never tell native stories, never tell stories that were um, indigenous people stories. I wouldn't because I respect that they don't want people telling their stories. Yeah, I totally respect that. There's, you know, yeah. those are their stories. Those stories are alive. They mean something to those people yeah. who are part of that culture. My taking them, not having an understanding of that, is to me sacrilegious. As sacrilegious as me telling stories the Sufis wouldn't want me to tell, or telling stories that people from Islam would not want me to tell, or telling stories that Christians would not want me to share. So, you know, you have to. I I treat all of that material the same way. Right. I, t I tend to do so too. There's a couple of stories that I tell which are um, first American, but I've also um, I, one of the stories I didn't realize was I, I was t I learned it as a European version of, um, and then I discovered that it was actually it, it's been adapted um, from the Native American Indian culture. Um, but I always explain that, and I tell where the story comes from. And the other story that I tell.
um, is uh, Joseph Bruchak's story. And I spoke with him, and he gave me permission to tell it. Well, it's not; a, it's a Seneca story, um, but it, I but I found it from Joseph Bruchak, who gave me permission to tell it. Uh, so, well, I have a friend who's Carrie Sue Bar, who's a storyteller out of Florida, uh-huh. and Carrie Sue says every story is Jewish, and everyone just did arrangements on it. And I say you are incorrect. Every story is African, and everyone just stole them. <laughs> and Andrew Lang says they all came from India. <laughs> <laughs> Africa. People were in Africa before they were in India. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yes, there you go. It's true, right? evolution all day long. What's your next question? Right, right. Okay. <laughs> so you've been doing this for a while because you're at college doing this, and yes. and and you have no doubt met a few storytellers, um, and you've probably worked with a few as well. Uh, is there anyone that has truly and deeply inspired? You? I mean, we've mentioned Reeves already, Doctor Professor Reeves. Um, is there is there another storyteller that has really had an effect on you and has has made you think more deeply about your work or has resonated with you in a certain way? There are two storytellers, I think, who's... I mean, now, there's, now, now, don't get me wrong, there are a number of storytellers whose work I really enjoy. Right. But there are probably two storytellers in the business who have had the biggest impact on my work. And the first one is Joe Callahan. Yes. <laughs> Joe Callahan, when I was... Uh, you talked about, you know, as a writer, you found out that you were, you, were, you were a writer who had some promise. I had been telling stories for a couple of years. I felt like I was a storyteller. And then Joe Callahan was invited to Northwestern University to perform. And, you know, Reeves contacted me. I was, still, I was living in Chicago at the time. I said, you've got to come. Joe Callahan's going to be here. You've got to come. So I show up. And I'd never seen him before. And I watched this gangly... Northeastern man turned into a woman from Scandinavia, like right in front of me. And so he did the herring shed. It's like takes an hour to tell it. It was the most phenomenal piece of storytelling I had ever seen live. And I just stared at him. And I don't remember what he was wearing. I don't remember. I spent an hour in the herring shed. And after that performance, I walked away from that understanding what storytelling was. Yeah. I mean, I knew what it was, I knew how to do it, but I really got it after I saw him do that. And I, I decided what I wanted to be at that moment. I wanted to be a magic person. That was the only way to describe what I had just experienced. Yeah. I wanted to be able to tell stories so completely that the audience looked up and realized they were right where they were. Like, they had no idea they were still in a theater. Yes. So, that was the first. So, what was, sorry, what was the name of the, the story? Hang on, hang on, hang on. What was the name of the story that he did? The Herring Shed. Okay, all right. H-E-R-R-I-N-G, The Herring Shed. Okay. It's about um, these uh, women in Nova Scotia who, during, I believe it was World War II, they dried herring for the war effort. And so it was about, and there's this little little rhyme in the middle of it, the herring shed. I mean, it was just, it was amazing. Anyway, um, the second person who totally blew me away. I'd seen her on tape, on video, before I met her, was Jackie Torrance. And I had seen her, she was part of the class Reeves taught, so I'd seen this woman, this big, bright pattern dress. She was a really heavy, heavy woman, and she was sitting and she was telling, she had this really animated face, she was as cute as a bug on the video. And I thought, oh, that's great. And then I saw her tell. I sat in an audience with Jackie Torrance uh, on stage, and I saw her tell, and I thought, I was going to sink to the floor. I mean, she 
was the most transformational teller I had ever seen. The way she moved, the way she used her voice, the way she used her face, her eyes, her hands, everything. I was blown away. I had never seen a performer embody with every single bit of their person that much of a story and not move at all. Wow. I'd never seen that before. And afterwards, because was, it was at the, uh, the Illinois Storytelling Festival back in the day when Jim May was running them. I was so sheepish about it. I mean, I could, like, barely talk to her. <laughs> I've never been that in awe of another human being in my life. And uh, just, you know, over the course of the years of her life that, that uh, I knew her, I actually just, I just grew to love her. She was just so fascinating. And, um, you know, I, I never became a close personal friend of hers, but... I didn't, you know, when she was around, I got a chance to sit with her. We chatted. She gave me suggestions, advice. She mentored me in a time that I knew her more than any other storyteller that I know. And Reeves, I was one of my professors and my very first mentor. Um, but Jackie really helped me hone my professional skills. I mean, she was just, nobody can touch that woman. Yeah, one of my uh, uh, sadnesses is that I'll, I'll never get to see her perform live, you know, because I, I didn't know of her. And I, I don't even know when she passed away, but um, I, I've heard her name a lot, and I've read her stories. I've heard recordings of her, like audio tapes. But um, she, was, she was a gem. I mean, she was unbelievable. Yeah. It sounds... Um, there's, there's another storyteller who I imagine was, was similar, and that's Alice Kane. Who, I never met Alice Kane, and I never saw her perform. Um, same with me as well. Um, but Dan, you, um, Janinski, is that right? I can't remember. But anyway, he, he, I saw him and, um, at one of the conferences and he told me if I, if I only buy one thing, get Alice Kane's, uh, CD set. Oh, okay. And it's the same thing. It's three, it's three discs and I can just sit there and listen to it and, and be taken away, be transformed, taken to a completely different place and, just by the sound of her voice and see these people you know there's no written words there's no illustrations but i can see the people that she creates mm -hmm. it's just amazing i wish i'd met her as well wow now i have to, now I have to look her up you should you should highly recommend it um so what's what's your favorite story to tell if you have one or which story resonates with you and, I'm, and i know that stories are like food you know sometimes you might like pizza and sometimes you might like mushroom stroganoff or whatever right but um is, is there one story that kind of like stays close to the top it's never that far away um i have two actually that do that well that's not true there's a whole bunch but um <laughs> probably two and i i think i like them because of the nature of the stories, and, and also some of the things I've told you about my background, like my dad. Uh, I love The Wife of Bath's Tale, or The Lovely Lady. Mm -hmm. I have an adaptation of that, which I absolutely love, and that I've put together over the course of, you know, 10 years from hearing other people tell variants of it, and the Canterbury Tales themselves. Mm -hmm. I love the story, and I love it because it is so... I don't know, visceral, I guess. <laughs> it, 
it, it makes you want to cheer, it makes you want to laugh, it has really great, vivid characters, and it's for adults, adults or much older teens or older teens, and I love telling it. I love the reactions to it. I love the creation of that story in space with an audience. Um, I love doing the characters. I mean, so it's, and, and it's one of those stories that's so visual and so beautiful and lyrical on top of everything else that it's a joy to tell. And the other one I enjoy telling is actually like a really creepy, creepy ghost story, which was written for me by my son when he was 10 years old. Oh, really? And it's probably one of the creepiest stories I tell. And before I tell it, and he also, make it worse, he read it, wrote it on the way home from church one day. <laughs> um, and probably my favorite part of that is that he wrote it when he was 10. And, you know, I worry about Stephen King because I know as a writer, you know, only about 10% of what's ever in your head ever makes it onto a sheet of paper. Yeah. And and I think about Stephen King's work, and I think if that's the 10% that got out of his head, what else is roaming around in there? Yeah. And after my son wrote this story, I worry about him in the same way. <laughs> and it is, uh, it's a great story about a young woman whose uh, very controlling fiancé ends up freezing to death on the top of a mountain, and over the course of the summer, she falls in love with someone else, and her dead fiancé comes back to get her. Ooh, I love those really stories. Story. <laughs> you should. You and I tell it to you usually starting in eighth grade, and I talk about the fact that uh, you have to, I call them red flag relationships. Be wary. <laughs> Be wary of these particular kinds of things. This is a yeah. red flag relationship. Yeah. And um, girls laugh and guys laugh, but you know, you're talking about it's. I use it to talk about abuse and oh. what is abusive and what isn't abusive. And so I think for me, that's also an incredibly powerful, incredibly visual story. But the message behind it, the reason to tell it is so powerful for me. I, I'm not an abused person. I, I have never been abused. My son, as far as I know, has never been abused. He never told me anything about it. He was, God help us all. Um, but when I see young people getting involved in relationships, like, you know, they're 12 years old, they think they're dating somebody. Yeah. You know, you, our ability to assess risk and how we deal with things changes pretty drastically by the time we're in our 20s. There are a lot of 14, 15, 16, 17-year-olds in relationships that are actually abusive. Yeah. Yeah. And they have no idea it's not supposed to be like that because they watch too much television. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Tell me. Oh, that's another topic for another day. <laughs> <laughs> that would be at least an hour on its own just talking about that. Oh, lordy. Um, yeah, no, I know what you mean. So, all right. Yeah, Icelandic stories. There's a lot of those types of stories in in the Icelandic tales yeah of of you know dead people coming back and you know lying and cheating and all sorts of you know they're dark they're a lot too I think if you have dark cold you end up with dark cold stories yeah yeah well I'm a big believer in that you know when I started studying um, stories deeply you know I found that a lot of Australian stories um, Aboriginal stories were were really dark and, and violent and everything and that started to occur to me that, wow, they, they live in these very, very harsh environments, so of course yeah. the story is going to be harsh. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so, you, you talk about Jackie, and I know that she she used to do, she did voices, and, and Jay, not so much, he, he kind of like throws, he throws you the, the idea of, of the character that you then create in your own mind. But I was, I was listening to one of your stories the other day, and I just, you and I do, do voices and noises and stuff. And I fell in love with your monkey voice. 
<laughs> it's a super mon- monkey voice. Do you want, could you give me a sample of it? It it puts such a big smile on my face when it because I was listening to the 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 monkey's heart, yes. which is a, there's a few stories that you and I both both tell, and I would love at some point I'd love to get together and just share those some of those stories that we both tell and and because they're very very different in the way that we present them. Mm-hmm. Well, when I first started performing, <clears throat> some of those voices I didn't know I you know you don't know they're in you until you get them out. Right. But that monkey story. It was funny because there was a group of storytellers back in the, uh, gosh, early, late 80s, early 90s, used to follow me around all over Chicago, desperate to learn how to make that noise. Um, They were young storytellers. I was a young storyteller. They were, some of them were a little older, and they just were like, how do you do that? And and I had just finished up my studies at Northwestern, and I was like, I took great vocal classes from this woman named Nan Withers-Wilson. And her job, she passed away just recently, did Nan. But her job was to teach you how to speak clearly and how to not make horrible noises when you speak. And because I took these classes, I found out you could make all sorts of interesting, horrible noises. <laughs> and the monkey sound came out of that. It's a series of glottal stops, you know, and call voice. So I can explain it that way, but in terms of explaining how it actually works, I couldn't do that. <laughs> yeah. No, I love, I love it. Um, one, of the, one of the things that, um, you know, kids come up to me and say, how do you make all those noises and those different voices and stuff? And, you know, I put it down to just being a boy. <laughs> <laughs> when kids ask me that, I tell them it's practice. I say it's my job. Yeah. It's one of my favorite stories about this is a story that I tell, which mirrors the story that Jackie told, which is one reason why I probably love it. But the story Jackie tells is that she, was, she's, she had a big pendant on, and she was telling stories, and she's making all these voices. And this kid in the audience kept raising his hand. She's like, I'll get to you, I'll get to you. And at the end, she finally says, what? And he says, I know where all those noises are coming from. They're coming from that thing around your neck. Oh. And I thought, that's cool. That's now, very I cool. I had braces at one point in my adulthood. And I was in South Carolina, and I had, they just put the rubber bands in my mouth. And I was up performing, and I did the, the um, Why Mosquitoes Buzz in People's Ears, which has, you know, like, what, ten voices and mm-hmm. sound effects up the wazoo. It's just this really wild, crazy story. And there's a kid, these two kids, you know, halfway back, and the little boy keeps poking his brother and saying something and saying something and saying something. Finally, his big brother hits him in the shoulder, says something to him, like, shakes, you know, nods his head, and it stops. Now, I'm desperate to know what they were talking about. Like, probably, can I get a snack? Can I get a snack? But I just wanted to know. Uh-huh. But after the set was over, all the people came up, and I lost my little boys. And they left. And I was like, oh, I'll never know. The librarian came up to me afterwards, laughing so hard. She said, do you want to know what those kids are talking about? I said, I really would, because it just seemed really urgent. The little brother kept saying, how is she making all that noise? Where is all that noise coming from? How is she doing that? And the older brother finally hit him and said, idiot, she's got rubber bands in her mouth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cute. Kids, they say the best things. So, um, I, w- I want you to tell me a little bit about your work with PBS and the KET program, the KET program, the World of Stories. That was set up by the ever so glorious Mary Hamilton. There is um, a storytelling festival that happens up in the mountains, and I want to say it's in Kentucky, up in the mountains, and um, they bring storytellers in. And you see, you know, you you have a a ghost story festival in the evening on the last day you're there. But the rest of the time, you're going into schools in this this little community. 
and uh, the rangers, the park rangers, drive you around to all these various schools, and you perform. And it's, it's a great week. It's a great week of stories. It's lovely. And the year that I went, they set it up so that the public television station had access to us. And on the premises of the state park where we were staying, there's a little cabin, and they set up a little recording studio, and each of us recorded um, stories for their Halloween program. And that's where you get that from. Oh, so that's a really neat thing. I've, I've watched some of those videos. They're really, really good. They did a great job. They did. They really do know what they're, they're doing. So, um, there's a couple of questions I was going to ask you, but you've already answered them, <laughs> which is great. Um, so you've worked in a, in a wide range of different places, you know, the, mm-hmm. the usual libraries and schools, but you also, for example, um, the Georgia Council of Media Organizations Conference, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers... Like, what was your most unexpected um, venue that you've performed or taught at? Because I know that you do a lot of workshops as well, and this is where I was getting most of these from. It appeared to be your workshops that you do. What was the most unusual um, call that you got, and what was your um, most enjoyable either performance or uh, workshop that you've ever given, and why? All right. I think probably the most unusual... And the, the one I ever did was back when I was a brand new spanking new storyteller. Um, because it actually, you know, the Corps of Engineers, all those, those were interesting calls, those were challenging calls. But I knew other storytellers who'd worked for organizations like that, so that wasn't as that wasn't as out there for me. Mm-hmm. Though it was interesting, it wasn't as out there. Right. Um, but this one kind of was. I got asked to go to the Brookfield Zoo. Now. Telling at a zoo is not that big a deal. You know, people, they have storytellers who come and work at the zoo. Right. But I, I was asked to come because they were opening their new Africa exhibit. And what they did was they had the animals that are not dangerous, like, you know, well, you know, in, retros- in, in, in scales of dangerousness, they're not that bad. Okay. Giraffes, for example. Right. And there's just like a little um, rope between you and the exhibit where the giraffes are when they're inside. Like, you could actually go into the rope and go touch the giraffe. I don't recommend you do that, but you could. Yeah. So they opened this exhibit at night, and they had their board and their um, uh, friends of the zoo, you know, people who donate a lot of money, come. Yeah. And they, want, they had stations set up in different places, and you could stop in and you could see a performer or a lecturer or somebody. So they asked me, I'd been working with the zoo off and on for, I don't know, about six months at that point. So they asked me to come in, in Chicago, and tell in the Africa exhibit by the giraffes, because the giraffes were going to be inside, they were going to be walking around, and there was a baby giraffe there. So I sat on a stool in a corner, and and it's sort of like a big wooden walkway. So you, you people were sort of lined up in a semicircle, uh, you know, in this walkway. Mm. And I started telling why mosquitoes buzz in people's ears. I've had that story in my repertoire a long time. So I'm telling that story, and everyone starts flashing pictures like crazy. I was like, what is going on? Because I was a little nervous about being so close to giraffes. I mean, they are wild animals, right? Yeah, you know what? Yeah. Anyway, I was like, don't be freaked out. They're not going to do anything. If they thought I was going to be charged by a wild animal, they wouldn't have me sitting here. <laughs> I turn around, the baby giraffe has come all the way to the edge of the cord, has leaned its head over, and is watching me tell stories. Oh. I told stories to a baby giraffe. That is 
That's got to be the most amazing experience. It was amazing. And, and just, they just kept, it just kept watching me. So I just started including it into the story. And then when the story was done, it's like it came out of a trance. It turned around and went back to its mother. Wow. I've had foxes watch me tell stories before. You had a what? A fox. A fox? And it's cubs, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had a Did fox. Did it come out of the forest and come sit and watch? It was, it was um, I was at Mount Washington, at the, the big hotel there. And um, I've been doing a whole series of uh, summer storytelling, uh, campfire stories. So I go there once a week and I tell stories over the summer. It was it was a fun gig. And they were outside and they had, at the very beginning, when we first started doing it, they had a, a real fire pit. And um, we served s'mores as well. And you'd see, the fox would come out with its, with its, kits or cubs and sit on the edge of the light and I could see them because they were looking towards me but they were behind everybody else mm -hmm. and it was it was a lot of fun we had a we had a bear come out once and listen and that was a bit scary everyone brings their children to storytelling they do it's so true it's so true so you, you talk about mosquitoes as being a story that you've had in your repertoire for a very long time um is there a story that you've had for a very long time that you just decided you had had enough of and you don't want to tell it anymore and you dropped it? Or a story that you just didn't like after telling it a few times and dropped it? Um, when I first started, I needed to... I needed material. <laughs> I have gigs I have to fill up 45 minutes to an hour for. And so I learned a whole mess of stories right at the very beginning just so I could make a living and meet some obligations. And I learned quickly what stories work for me and what stories do not work for me. And so the stories that do not work for me haven't been in my repertoire so long. I really could not tell you what they are. Well, that's a good thing. However, <laughs> what does happen every now and again, and this is kind of interesting. For instance, there was a fellow named Arap Sang, A-R-A-P-S-A-N-G. He's, like, he's a demigod from Africa for whatever reason. And I found, ran across a number of very short stories. And I, I, I question his origin and who he is, really. And I think it's probably these are Aesop stories, and somehow or other it got translated to Arab saying. Okay. But, uh, so I stopped telling them. But every now and again, I will be somewhere, and I will need a three-minute story, and I'll break that story up. But it's not a story. It's not a story I tell. I introduce explaining why, what I think it is, mm -hmm. and I tell it because it's it's a straight up fable. It's that last three minutes, and it will get me through a. Hey, I know we didn't ask you to do this, but can you tell a three minute story? Yeah, yeah. Those so are, those... there is something that has happened that's interesting for me, and that is stories that either a I didn't like or b I didn't ever tell. Mm -hmm. Stories have come back into my repertoire as I've gotten older and had better handle on them. That's happened with several stories. Yeah, I think that, I think it does. I think it's something to do with what we what we experience in life. Yeah. And what we see around us, and whether that story needs to be told or not. Um, that I agree. That that and sometimes you have no voice to tell a story when you learn it, and it's only later in retrospect that you find the voice to tell it. Yes, I'm having problems with Gilgamesh right now, right now because I can't find the voice for it. Yeah. It's driving me crazy. But anyway, so tell me about David <laughs> and all the ways he figures in your life. What makes him so special? Because I, I, I get the feeling that he is very, very special. He is probably one 
of the most amazing men I have ever met. Of course, I married him, so you know that I'm obligated to say that. <laughs> but ultimately, he really, really is. Um, when we were dating, when we first met, and he found out I was a storyteller, his response was kind of like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> you read books to children. What a lovely thing to do. And then, probably two months in, I got invited to a coffee house in downtown Chicago. And because he thought I read books to kindergartners, he was concerned that I was going to go in front of these grown-ups, like I wasn't aware of exactly what I was supposed to be doing, mm-hmm. and that I was going to be in trouble, or they weren't going to like it, or, and so he decided to go for moral support. And so we got in there, and I told a story about a shape-changing lion that eats women. And he had never seen anything like that before. And he took me to dinner the next night, and he said, okay, here's the thing. I have a job, you have a career, can I stay home with the children? Oh, wow. So two months in, <laughs> and I just started laughing. I thought that was hysterical. Well, eventually, of course, we ended up staying together, obviously, and um, got married, started having kids. And at one point, about... Um, I'd say five years in to the raising of children. He came home from work one day and said, okay, now nobody's in diapers and nobody needs to be weaned. Everyone's weaned. Um, can I stay home with the kids now? I was like, really? Said, yep, my turn. You have to go back to work. <laughs> so, and and uh, I was happy to do it because uh, staying home mom, I did it for five years. Totally not my, not my gig, not my thing. Yeah. So... I said, you give me six months, I'll see if I can wrap my business back up, and then you can, you know, stay home. At that point, you had two cars, a house, and I was like, how am I going to support four people and all of this stuff on storytelling? Because at that time, of course, the joke that uh, Bill Harley told, like, resonating in my head, which was, um, what's the difference between a large cheese pizza and storytelling? I don't know. What's the difference between a large cheese pizza and storytelling? A large cheese pizza can feed a family of four. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) So I freaked out about it, and I called all of these people. I called Sid Lieberman. I called Jim May. I called Milby Birch. I called... I forget who else I called. I was like, I can't, well, what am I going to do? My family's going to die. Everyone's going to stop and lose their house. And they were like, calm down. You're going to be fine. It's fine. And David's response was, if I didn't know you could do this, I'm incredibly practical. I wouldn't ask you to do it. Plus, yeah. you aren't happy doing this. You're not happy being home. Go out and perform. We will work it out. And so he kept asking me to hand over the business end of it to him. And I kept saying, no, you're raising the children. You're keeping the house. I know that's a lot of work. I just did it for five years. And then uh, that spring... I was at the Stone Soup Festival with Donald Davis, and I was on the phone call with three other people trying to book things, and I was trying to keep notes somewhere, and Donald Davis was laying flat on his back with his legs crossed. After I got off the phone, he looked over at me and he said, what exactly is David doing right now? I said, I don't know, he's raising the children, he's whatever. He goes, he can answer phones. (laughs) And it occurred to me, he said to me, if you were a guy and he was a woman, you wouldn't think twice about asking him to do all of the stuff you're doing right now and clean the house and keep the kids. Yeah, right. And I thought, yeah, I wouldn't, but I'm a woman and I wouldn't ask him to do all that. But this is exhausting with me trying to travel and perform. So I went home and said to David, hey, I have an idea. Why don't you take this over? <laughs> and he said, 
Um, and within six months, he doubled our income. Mm. And it also meant that I didn't have the same anxieties that I had, and I was really able to just focus on learning the material, writing, and all the other things that have come out of him uh, taking over the business. To the point where I don't even book anything. If you call, talking to me is useless. You need to just talk to David, and <laughs> I don't even know where I'm supposed to be half the time. The joke I have is that, you know, before I walk out the door in the morning, he hands me a sheet of paper that says, this is where you're going, this is what you're doing, this is who you're seeing, have a nice day. That's nice. And I just pick it up and go. <laughs> so we have uh, created a very workable, very lovely situation where I make the art, he runs the business, and my heart goes out to him like now because, you know, he's got your taxes to do and he's doing sales tax all over the country and, you know, he's also does all the accounting and we have an accountant that does that. We, um, that does the, the really big stuff, but he does all the in-house stuff. Right, so he, and he, he, uh, we incorporated, I, I, I am like Exxon, I am a C-Corp. We became a C-Corp about a decade ago and that requires all this other stuff and he does all of it. Wow. Is there any advantage? No, let's not talk about that. I don't care about that right now. He's also, of course, he raised the kids, and he, you know, he's the the parent who was a primary caregiver for, you know, like you know, last ten years. My kids have been of my kids' life, so wow. pretty cool. Are your children? Are they into the arts much, or are they? My son attends they... the Rochester Institute of Technology, and he is studying to be a three-dimensional digital artist. He's studying graphics and animation there. Uh huh. Um, he's do it, does it, and of course he wants to do video games. He's a really story-based graphic artist. Wow. And my daughter um, does body art. She designs. She's designed people's tattoos. She does freehand drawing. Uh, she does a lot of really kind of cool stuff. Right on my blog at the moment, I think there is. Um, I talk about the importance of arts and education, and I actually have some of the drawings and stuff that my kids have done as part of looking at how an art-centered education can help you, even if you're not art-centered, because my daughter wants to be a physicist and has written her first novel and um, does graphic arts and three-dimensional drawing. So, you know, she, as a, uh, she also is really interested in engineering, but the arts that she engages in helps her deal with the engineering parts of her brain. Like, they help her visually see things. So she is a really visual engineer physicist. Wow. That's not a terrible thing to be. No, it's not. So both of them do arts. My son wants to make a living at it. My daughter just wants to play forever. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. Not at all. So Donna Washington's yeah. blog is Donna Washington Storyteller, or one word, dot blogspot dot com. Yes. Yes. So, um, what's the most rewarding work that you have ever done, either collectively or individually, or like something that's like come into your life as as in the story world? What's the most rewarding work that you've done? Do you think? I think the most rewarding work I do is with educators. Mm -hmm. I love teaching, I love working with educators and having them get back to me about what they're doing in the classroom. Because, you know, if you can start all of this work when kids are little, you don't have as much of it to do when they grow up. Right. They'll already be thinking in story. And 
So I guess the best example of that is um, I've been teaching language games, and we played them all the time as a kid. But I think people are playing them less and less. The language games are incredibly important if you're going to really have a handle on how you speak, how you present yourself, the, 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 uh, how comfortable you are improvisationally, being able to put your thoughts into some kind of reasonable frame in a short period of time. All those things language games help you work on. Yeah. And so I was in a classroom recently and uh, d- just did a, uh, like an hour of language games with teachers and their, their students. And my goal is that the games would carry on. Like, the, the teachers could use them in the classroom, but the kids would love them so much they would do them themselves. And right. the teachers were really skeptical that that was going to happen, because who wants to play language games when there are video games and everything else? And have heard from teachers saying not only did the kids love them, that they do them themselves, that they started doing them at home with their brothers and sisters, they do them at the classroom, they do them at lunch and at recess. Wow. And that the teachers have started using them in the class because they're a great way to help the kids interact with each other. Yeah. So for me, that is the most rewarding thing. I mean, I get letters from kids who tell me, oh, you, you made my day better. I've had adults say all kinds of things like, our staff needed to hear those stories more than the kids did, that kind of stuff. But for me, when a, when a story sort of takes that jump um, or the work takes that jump into how people go forward in their lives, then I have succeeded at something. Right. And that's when you get the the videos posted of someone that's a kid that's seen you telling a story and they're telling the story now and their parents send you right. a link to it. Yeah. Right. Or, you know, the, the people send me, you know, I, I have people who send me videos all the time going, this is my kid being you. And right. they're telling the story using the exact same inflection I'm using um, off the top of their head somewhere in a car traveling somewhere. Right. So I get stuff like that, which is cool. But I really like the idea that the stories live long past your 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 um, exposure, which is how folklore survives, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. So what's your favorite breakfast, and where would you choose to eat it, and with whom? I'm assuming it would be David. <laughs> um, yeah, my entire family. I would, I would choose to eat it with my, my kids and my husband, and probably my sister and her kids. Like, my, my, my parents, my favorite breakfast is, uh, okay, it's, it's a skillet breakfast. So if you had um, some kind of meat, like steak or, or sausage or ham or something like that, and shredded potatoes and uh, mushrooms and onions and peppers all sauteed together, and then you put it in a pan with scrambled eggs and cover it and then slice it into quarters. Yeah. That is my favorite breakfast. Yeah, that, that's a good breakfast. Except I'm a, <laughs> I'm, I'm a vegetarian, but apart from that, <laughs> that is a good breakfast. If you could meet a storyteller, living or dead, who you have not already met yet, who would that be? <laughs> Merlin. Merlin the Magician. That's who I would meet. That's a good I one. someone real. <laughs> no, I, I like that. Well, you could say Taliesin, because Taliesin was real. But That's after after Taliesin, who would it be? Um, you know who I think I would like to meet? I can't remember his name at the moment. I'll have, let me look it up. The guy who wrote the Mordial to The what? The Death of Arthur. Oh, yes. Uh, t- um. I, I can't like, my I wasn't thinking about him. I can't remember the name. Let me just look it up here. Oh, there it is. Sir Thomas Mallory. Thomas Mallory. Yes. Yes. 
That's who I would meet. Wow, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, see, see, I, I'm not, I don't know, he might be alright. He or Spencer? I'm not sure. Okay, or Spencer. I can't remember. Oh yeah, okay. Edmund, um, Edmund Spencer, who wrote The Fairy Queen, which is like this big book of supposedly the history of Britain, and it was written for Queen Elizabeth I. So there's a lot of a lot of the fairy queens are in reference to Queen Elizabeth I. Or Chaucer. I think Chaucer would be someone interesting. Yes, see, I yes, I would like to see him, meet him. I bet he'd be a lot more fun <laughs> than than hanging out with Thomas Mallory in prison. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, so I I got a massive list of people that I'd like to 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 see a storytellers, but yeah, that's a good one. I like those. Um, if there was one person that you would like to swap stories with, I guess this is a similar kind of question. Um, you know, like a, I'd say more contemporary storyteller, you know, in the last 50 years. Like if there was one person you could, one storyteller that you could sit down with and just swap tales with, who do you think it would be? Yeah, there you go. That's somebody else I haven't seen. Or... That's that's good. Yeah, because, you know, most of the people who's, for instance, you know, I love listening to Charlotte Blake Austin. I love telling stories uh, with her. I love listening to her tell. She's wonderful. She's one of my favorite storytellers to just hang out with, right. Charlotte Blake Austin. Um, but there are, you know, I mean, there are a ton of storytellers I enjoy working with. But... If, if there was one who I really wish I could sit down and just swap stories with, it would be J.J. Renault. That's cool. I like that idea. I'm trying, to, I'm, I'm trying to see it in my mind right now, and I like that. I like the visual. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us? Is there a secret passion that you've had in your life that you've not yet fulfilled? A secret passion I have not yet fulfilled? Yeah, I don't know where that came from. One that you'd want to share. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike a lot of people, I don't have a bucket list. Um, mostly because I have lived this really amazing life. And there was only one thing that I really thought I wanted to try to accomplish as a storyteller. And it was a financial goal, actually. And I have it because of Joe Callahan. Joe um, Callahan was on... When, when I was first doing storytelling and my parents were concerned that I wouldn't be able to support myself. Joe Callahan was on the front of the Wall Street Journal. He made the cover because he made over $100,000 a year as a storyteller. Wow. And I clipped that out and sent that to my parents and I said, see, storytellers can make enough money to survive. So then my father's response was, well, when you start making $100,000, you just let me know. So my goal, I thought, my lifelong goal, I'll be like 80 before this happens, is I will make $100,000 as a storyteller. That was my goal. So I hit that goal years ago. And that was like my big, huge storytelling goal, was to be financially successful as a storyteller. Nice. So having achieved that, you know, now my goals are like, I want to have X amount of books published. And I actually hit that goal, so I, I, I've done that. And so then the next goal is, um, what, I, now it's just a question of venues. I want to tell in that venue or that venue or this venue. But, but in terms of things that I feel are like impossible goals to shoot for, 
I still have those, but they're sort of like, I want to make, I want to write a blockbuster novel. Like I have no control over that. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and I think a lot of authors have that same goal. So I don't have any like personal, private, I want to accomplish this type of goals. My goals have become much more like, wouldn't it be great if this happened? Yeah, yeah. And so I'm always up for that. If that happens, whoo, I could check that off. Yeah. But, but it's not like there's anything I could probably do to make that happen other than continue to write and submit my work and get better as a writer as I can. Yeah. Not, those, are good, those are good goals. Donna, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I, I really appreciate your time. We've been chit-chatting for over 101 uh, hour and 20 minutes. So. <laughs> So it's, it's been a while, so I, I really appreciate this. This has been very gracious of you. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm, I hope it's useful. I'm, I, you can find some gold in the dross. Oh, there's, it's, there's no dross in here. Are you kidding okay. me? <laughs> so, Donald Washington, you're... Off the top of my head, who knows what came out of my mouth, you know? Yes, right. That's, that's, that's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> so, Donald Washington, your web's, website is D L W storyteller.com what's the l stand for Lynette and you can find Donna's website where you can find everything about her performances and workshop offerings purchase those CDs and books that we talked about earlier and if you're listening to this remember buy new otherwise Donna doesn't make any money and somebody else will <laughs> thanks so much Donna thank you Simon a huge thank you to my guest Donna Washington Donna, thanks for letting me spend so much time with you. I really appreciate it. Like many of these interviews, I spent a few months collecting them. Actually, a few years. So this one was recorded back in 2017. I hope you, my listeners, enjoyed the conversation as much as I did making it. Also, thanks to Ben Schultz, who provided the music. That's me on the drums, too. A great musician and songwriter. Creating a podcast is very much, at least this one, a labour of love and takes a large amount of time and no small resource to make it and host it. To help keep this podcast going and to help create more, please consider making a donation. You can do this either through my website, www.simonbrooksstoryteller.com or on my Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash Brooks. There is no E in Brooks. I would like to give a huge thanks to my helper Pixies, Rachel Ann Harding, Chris Riddell, and Claire Miller, who are supporting this podcast. And I'd also like to give a shout out to Harvey, Pat, Hope, and Merrick, who are also helping out. I'd also like to say thanks to HDHSWR1, which sounds almost like a UK's postal code, who said, what a wonderful resource for aspiring and seasoned storytellers. Well done. Keep them coming. And don't you worry. I will. Thanks again. If you can, leave a review on iTunes or wherever else you found this podcast. It helps not just me, but it helps others find this podcast and know what they're getting into. Please jump on the interwebs and find out more about my guests. Follow them if you like, and you can also follow me. All my guests are amazing storytellers, without a question of a doubt. Again, thanks for listening and being there. I hope you join me for the next episode of Conversations with Storytellers, when the guest will be... I can't tell you that, then it'll be no surprise. So until next time, 